Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew. I serve as a pastor here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scriptures tonight. So let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Hebrews chapter 11. If you didn't have a Bible, know that there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that we have Bibles on the table in the foyer for you to grab and have on your way out. Let it be our gift to you. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning of verse 13, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16, and really kind of zeroing in on one of our core values as a faith family here in Seattle. We have about seven core values of things that we cherish and that we hold deeply as people of faith following Jesus in this city at this time. And one of those core values is described as cultural integrity. And what we mean when we say we cherish and value cultural integrity, we're recognizing the fact that as followers of Jesus, we are right now citizens of the kingdom of God. And we want to live as faithful citizens of the kingdom of God. But at the same time, we recognize that we live in the city of Seattle, right? So we're citizens of the kingdom of God, yet we're members of a society here in this city. And so the, the desire of cultural integrity is try to figure out how we live as faithful citizens of the kingdom of God and fruitful citizens in the city of Seattle, and this whole idea of cultural integrity, it, it can be a quite complex deal. It can be a complex concept. In fact, the relationship between the church and culture has always been a complex relationship. The relationship between Christians and society has always been a difficult thing to navigate at times. Sometimes, if you're like me, and perhaps you've been uh, exposed to Christianity uh, a lot over the course of your days in this world, you, you may find yourself feeling a bit schizophrenic about your relationship between uh, the church and the culture. A guy by the name of Michael Horton, who's a professor of theology and apologetics at Westminster Seminary, he points this out when he, when he says this. He says it was confusing to grow up singing two songs. It was confusing to grow up singing on one hand, this world is not my home. But in the very next breath to sing a song titled, this is my father's world. You're like, okay, which is it? It gives you whiplash, right? This world is not my home. This is my father's world. What reality are we living into? And he would go on to say that those hymns embody two common and seemingly contradictory Christian responses to culture. One sees this world as a wasteland of godlessness with which the Christian should have as little as possible to do. The other regards cultural transformation as virtually identical to kingdom activity. So you have this tension that those two songs and those two truths, those two realities kind of point out because both of those hymns are declaring true biblical realities. They're saying true things about who God is and about the world in which we live. But they also un, uh, uncover a, the, the tension that you and I are called into as we follow Jesus through the world that is and en route to the world that is to come. And what you want to think about together tonight is how this tension isn't something that you and I should seek to relieve. We don't want to massage it out of our Christianity. We don't want to massage it out of our discipleship. Instead, we want to embrace this tension. There's another scholar by the name of Gene Elstein, who was a professor of politics and ethics at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. And she identifies two extremes that Christians sometimes go to in order to massage this tension out of our discipleship. She would go on to say this. Well, there are some who take a standalone posture against culture. And she says that that posture too often turns into brittle condemnation a stance of haughty, presumed moral superiority as, as Christians circle their wagons. But then she says the other extreme is just as uh, undesirable. She says the other extreme is this. She says at the same time, transforming culture on its own may degenerate into a naive idealism, even a utopianism. She says, avoiding these extremes, we must see Christ, get this, we must see Christ both against and for. We must see him as antagonistic and affirming. We must see him arguing and embracing. This is complex, but then again, Christianity is no stranger to complexity. And it is this complexity that 
the passage before us in Hebrews chapter 11 is calling our attention to. Because this passage is one of those passages that drives cultural integrity deeper into our spiritual DNA, calling us to embrace the tension that comes with living by faith in Jesus, walking through the world that is en route to the world that is to come. You see, essentially, verses 13 through 16 is a summary passage uh, summarizing that which has come before it, all the stories of faith that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. Most notably, the story of Abraham that we looked at last week. Abraham and his descendants who lived by faith. I think when you step into verse 13 and you read, these all died in faith, I think it's most immediately referring to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his descendants who journeyed as pilgrims through the world that they were in as they were called out of one place and into another, journeying to the promised land. But notice it says in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were, here's the key phrase, strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham and his immediate descendants, Isaac and Jacob most notably, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. That identity creates tension, doesn't it? That identity creates tension in our discipleship. It creates tension in our approach to relating to God and walking with God. I mean, earlier in verse 8, we are told that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place. He responded to God's call of grace with a life of faith. And over the course of his journey of faith, he acknowledged, look, I am now, because of God's call on my life, I am now a stranger and an exile. He would say as much in Genesis chapter 23, verse 4, where Abraham is having a conversation uh, with the Hittites, these people who occupied and pretty much ruled the land of Canaan when Abraham showed up. And Abraham lived there a long time, this land of promise that God said he would give to Abraham, but in his lifetime, he never received formally. And so it's interesting that he's living in the land of promise, but that promise hasn't been realized. His wife, Sarah, dies, but he has no place to bury her because he owns no land. He has no property. So what does he do? He goes to the Hittites and he, and he makes this request. Genesis 23, verse 4, I and noted, hear him acknowledging his identity. He says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you to bury my dead out of my sight. He's asking for permission to use the land that God has already promised to give him. Why is that? Well, it's because he is in that moment a sojourner and an exile. He's not yet home. He's not yet, the, the promises God has made to him are not yet fully realized in his life. But then you consider his, his grandson Jacob. He makes a very similar statement. Much later in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 47, verse 9, Jacob approaches the Pharaoh and he refers to his life and he refers to Abraham's life. But listen to the categories. Genesis chapter 47, verse 9, and Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of what? In the days of their sojourning, their pilgrimage, their journey through the world that is. And so what I want us to think about as we consider these categories, this identity of being a sojourner and an exile, that the call of grace, when it comes into our lives, this is what his call makes us. And the, writers of Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews wants you and I to acknowledge that being strangers and exiles on the earth is fundamental to the Christian identity. If you are a Christian, this is fundamental to who you are. Being a stranger and an exile is not optional. It is essential to you, and it is essential to the call of grace upon your life. For just as God showed up in Abraham's life out of nowhere and by grace called him, saying, I'm going I'm to take you from this place, I'm going to put you in a new place, and I'm going to bless you in the process, Jesus has stepped onto the horizon of our lives, and he's said to us what he, in similar things that he said to his original disciples, hey, I want you to follow me. 
and I want you to follow me and I'm gonna make you become fishers of men. And he's extended that call onto our lives. And in the process of stepping into that relationship, we assume this identity of being sojourners and exiles. This is fundamental to our identity. In other words, the Christian life is a life of pilgrimage. It's a life where our affections are uprooted from one place and from one system of thinking and from one system of living. And they are rerooted in a new system, in a new way of thinking, and in a new way of living. Essentially, we are uprooting our affections from being so infatuated and in love with the world that is, and we reroute them in Christ and his kingdom, or to put it another way, we reroute them in the world that is to come. And this makes all the difference when we respond to God's call on our lives in that way. And, and Jesus would later say to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, those who would, who would follow him, who would find their, loves, their lives uprooted and rerooted in him and in his kingdom, he would say things about what it, uh, he would warn about not looking back after having been uprooted and rerooted. Luke chapter 9, verse 62, for example, Jesus would say to one enthusiastic disciple whose affections weren't entirely uprooted yet and they weren't entirely rerooted in Christ, and so he says to them, look, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for God's kingdom. And it's, it's language that is echoed by the writer of Hebrews in verse 14 and 15. When you come back to this passage, it says, for people who speak thus, that is those who acknowledge that they are strangers and exiles on the earth, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. If, in other words, if they had been looking backwards, they wouldn't have moved forwards. If they had been looking backwards, they would not have seen uh, the promises of God even from afar. They would not have embraced or acknowledged the identi their identity as strangers and exiles who've been called by grace into his kingdom. Now, there, there were people in Abraham's sphere of influence, in his travel traveling tribe, so to speak, who, who did look back. And as a result, because they looked back, they did not die in faith. They died in faithlessness. I'll give you the, the biggest example of this would happen when Abraham's family began to grow and, and his tribe got a little too big to occupy one space and he had a nephew named Lot and his family was growing and Abraham's was growing so they decided to split up and get some more space and so Lot basically took his family to a place called Sodom. And he rooted his family in the city of Sodom and they began to grow and, and things were happening there. But if you know anything about the story of the Bible, the word Sodom isn't a good word. The, the city of Sodom isn't a good city. It was a city that God viewed to be wicked and unrighteous. There was a lot of things about it that, that aroused God's righteous indignation. And as a result, the story of the scripture is that God sent judgment upon the city of Sodom. And he would do to that city something very similar to what he did to the earth in Noah's day. Judgment would come to Sodom. But Abraham learned about this, and so he was able to go warn Lot to deliver that word of warning to Lot and his family to leave Sodom before judgment came, giving them an opportunity to be delivered. And so Lot and his family packed up, and they left the city, and they were, they were exiting the place, and they're moving forward. And Abraham warned them about not looking backward. Just go forward towards the promise of God. God promises deliverance in this direction. Don't look back. And as they are leaving the city... This woman in their party, a par a party, Lot's wife, we are told that she looked backwards at the city and when she looked backwards, her fate became the same fate as the city of Sodom. Genesis chapter 19, 19 verse 26, we are told, but Lot's wife behind him, what'd she do? She looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Perhaps she looked back with regretful longing, wondering, I'm not sure I want to give up what I'm leaving behind in Sodom for this new land that I don't know much about at this point in time. And, and so maybe she looks back with regretful longing, and as a result, her fate became the same fate as the city that received God's judgment in that moment. And I know that's not a pleasant story. 
That's not a story that you really want to come in and, and get nudged to put a smile on your face as you think about judgment and this woman losing her life because she looked backwards. But I would, the reason I put it before you is because in Luke chapter 17, verse 32, Jesus tells us, hey, I want you to remember Lot's wife. I want you to remember her example. She's a tragic illustration of what it looks like to look backwards. She's a tragic illustration of what it looks like to, to move forward without your affections being uprooted from the place that you were leaving and from your affections not being rerooted in the new reality that Christ is calling you into. So Jesus tells us, Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife, and then he would go one step further. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. It's ironic that he talks about preservation, knowing what went down with Lot's wife, you know, becoming a pillar of salt. I'll let you think about that one. But she says, he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. The warning not to look backwards. Now, there's a, another passage that you've already read and reflected upon that says something similar. If it is true that you and I are going to go the way of our city, that our fate is wrapped up with the fate of whatever world we are in love with, then we have to think seriously about what John is writing in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, listen to the connection between affections and what world your, uh, your affections are rooted in. 1 John chapter 2, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. But then he goes on, and the world is what? Passing away along with its desires. Meaning if your affections are rooted in the world that is, then when the world disintegrates, you will disintegrate. That this world is not capable of sustaining your affections and carrying, through, carrying them through to a redemptive end. So what's the call of Christ? The call of Christ is to uproot those affections and to reroot them into some, in something that lasts, which is why he would say next, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So you reroute your affections in Christ and his kingdom. You attach your affections to that which cannot be shaken or taken or disturbed or disintegrated. You put your affections in Christ and his kingdom. This is essentially what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. We are those who've received God's call of grace and we've responded with lives of faith saying, I'm putting my affections, I'm banking my hope, I'm banking my life, I'm seeking my pleasure, I'm seeking my satisfaction in Jesus and his kingdom, in Jesus and all the things he promises to be and do for his people. So we are, as a result, if that is what we're doing, if we're responding to that, then that means you and I are going to embrace the fact that the world as it is now is not our home. And we are living towards a better world. We're living towards what's described in verse 16. Check it out again. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire, referring to aliens and str strangers and exiles, they desire a better country, a far better country. That's their desire. That's where they've rooted their affections that is a heavenly one. And get this, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them what? A city. And I love that word city. The fact that God is preparing a city for his people. Do you know that that gets after this dynamic that when you talk about a city in this passage or anywhere else in the scriptures, essentially what, what's being described there is God preparing a new human society a new world for his people to enjoy with him forever. A new human society, a new civilization, one that isn't characterized by all the things that make life miserable in this world. This is the city, this is the new society that God is preparing for those who are living by faith in Jesus. And there's remarkable pictures about what this city is going to be like in the future. You get to Revelation chapter 21 and, and we are told that this city that God has prepared for us is coming down. And we are told that in this city, God himself is going to cleanse it, 
entirely cleanse it from everything that makes life miserable in the here and now. Meaning this city, this society, this civilization isn't going to be marred by sickness. It isn't going to be marred by suffering. It isn't going to be marred by Satan. It isn't going to be marred by sin. It isn't going to be marred by death. None of that is going to be a part of this new society. This new society is going to be righteous and holy and pure. This new society is going to be the place and the people through whom God's glory fills the new earth as the waters cover the sea right now. It's going to be a remarkable reality, this city that God is preparing for us. But then you go one step further, understand that this is going to be a place that's entirely cleansed of all that we hate about life in this world right now. There's a moment where the God who's preparing this city is going to draw near to each and every one of his people. And we are told in Revelation 21 verse 4 that he's going to take his hand and he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Wiping away our tears, removing our sorrows, removing our sadness, filling our lives with a vibrant, eternal joy and pleasure and satisfaction with him forever. This is the city that is to come. This is the city that we are living towards. This is the city that makes, is why you and I want to acknowledge the fact that we are strangers and exiles. We want to embrace the fact that this world, as it is now, is not our home. We're moving towards a far bigger, far better home. But in saying that, there's also some tension that comes up with this. If we're going to talk about the city as being something that's future-oriented, that we're moving towards, but then you read a couple of chapters later in the book of Hebrews and you come across other descriptions of this city that seem to suggest that this city is a present reality right now, that we have it now. And so it kind of puts us in a tense spot, wondering, well, which is it? Is it future or present? I'll show you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. You just turn one chapter in your In your Bible to chapter 12 and look at verse 22. The writer of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. The same language. You have come right now. You you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so you read that after reading Hebrews chapter 11. You're like, well, which one is it? Is, Is the city future or is it present? Is it something we're longing for or is it something we're enjoying right now? Is it already or not yet? And the answer is yes. That's the tension you're called to embrace. That's the tension you're called to live in. The answer is yes. It is future and present. It is already. There, there are aspects of this city that you and I can enjoy and engage in now. But we know there's a whole lot more to this city still to come. So it is both future and present. It is already not yet. And so what does this do to our lives? What does this do to our identity as strangers and exiles? Who's embracing the tension of living towards something remarkable, but also living in that reality to some degree right now? Well, you come back to Hebrews 11 and you consider the language of strangers and exiles. Now, there are a lot of commentators who point this out, but that word exile is a little bit misleading to translate the word to exile because a better, uh, the word kind of speaks to a more official status than just an exile. Many commentators refer and prefer the translation of resident alien, that Christians are resident aliens. Aliens, and that's probably the best description of what the Hebrew writer is referring to in that verse. This idea of being a resident alien means that you and I are not, as we consider the lives that we're living right now in this world, understand that you're not a visitor. And understand that you're not a tourist. Understand that you're not a visitor, you're not a tourist, but at the same time, your, your identity, your home isn't here either. You're a resident alien. You have a different kind of status. It's not unlike what the people of Israel experienced when they were sent into exile. Back in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were sent off into 
what's called Babylonian exile. They were occupied and, and, and basically taken away from the promised land and brought into the Babylonian empire. And the, the leaders, the rulers of the Babylonian empire wanted them to assimilate into their culture, but yet they wanted to stay faithful to Yahweh, faithful to the Lord who had delivered them from Egypt so long before that moment. And, and so they're wrestling with this tension that the, Babylon, the Babylonian empire is putting pressure upon them to become like them. And they're wondering, well, uh, well it doesn't look like we're going to go home to the promised land. So what are we going to do in the meantime? And then a word, a word would come to the people of Israel in exile from the prophet Jeremiah. And he would talk to them in language that seems to suggest they were to live like resident aliens. I'll show it to you. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 5. This is how they were to go about their days in a land that wasn't their home. They weren't to live as visitors and they weren't to live as tourists. They weren't to assimilate entirely and they weren't to isolate. He calls for a different way. Listen, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. In other words, go about the ordinary things of life. Get married, have kids, get jobs, work well. He's saying, go about those types of activities in the world that is. And then he would go on. So that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Meaning, don't stop doing the things that, that correspond with an ordinary life, a natural life in this world. But then he offers this. After saying, continue to live your life, even in Babylon, while you're doing that, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He's saying, I want you to live a fully engaged life in Babylon. But I want you to live your life in a way that would bring divine blessing to the people surrounding you. That as resident aliens, they were to live in a way that, that said, you know, Babylon's not my home, but as long as I'm here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live to bless those around me. I'm going to seek the welfare of my city. I'm going to seek to bless everyone that I come in contact with. And I'm going to do so by remaining faithful to my God and being as fruitful as I can of a citizen or of a resident alien in the Babylonian empire. And I think there's a lot there for us to consider when we think about what it means to live as strangers and exiles what it means to embrace the tension of this identity we have as we follow Christ. You see, the reality is many of us seek to relieve the tension, to massage this tension by doing one of two things. Some of us don't want to acknowledge ourselves as resident aliens. We just want to acknowledge ourselves as residents. We view ourselves as residents of this world, and we exclude the whole alien concept from our discipleship. And this happens when you find yourself blending in so much with the surrounding culture that there's nothing distinct about your life as a result of Jesus. You are no longer expressing the difference Jesus makes in your life because you're blending so well into the surrounding culture. You're a resident, but you're not an alien. And when this seeps into the church, you suddenly find yourself surrounded by churches and communities of faith where people don't like conflict. They don't like uh, the waters to be roughed in any discernible way. And so we just kind of blend in, viewing ourselves as, re as residents. And, and all of a sudden, churches become mirror images reflecting back to the culture what the culture already values, what the culture already prizes, what the culture already cherishes. Why? Because the church is full of residents, but not resident aliens. It's full of people who are blending in, but there's nothing distinct about them as it, as it pertains to their relationship with Jesus. And so a lot of churches, these, you know, and I, the temptation for churches is to start trying to perform Jedi mind tricks on people. You know, somebody comes in, we have a conversation, it's, you know, we are not the people you're looking for, right? We're not the people who believe that the scriptures teach hard truths like judgment and hell and wrath. We're not the people you're looking for. We're not the people who believe the Bible teaches things, has something to say about sexual ethics in a culture like ours. 
We're not the people you're looking for. And so we just start performing these mind tricks, ignoring teaching, uh, fairly clear teachings of the scriptures. Why? Because we're trying to live as residents. We're trying to remove anything that might cause us to appear strange to the world that we are living in. And all the while we're doing so, we're abandoning the core fundamental aspect of our identity of being resident aliens. But then there's another extreme to that. Some of us might move towards the resident area, but then there are others who live their lives as aliens. You know, they, they, they live their lives in an utter, utterly irrelevant fashion. They don't view themselves as residents in this world. They, they love the fact that they're aliens in this world. And so what do they do? They stand out. They don't blend in. They stand out. They love conflict. They love protest. And when this mentality seeps into the life of the church, the church becomes a perpetual protest known more by what they are against than what they are for. Leading with the negative rather than the positive. Maybe speaking some truth, but that truth is utterly detached from a heart of compassion and a heart of empathy and a heart of grace. And they become what? Aliens. Just pure aliens living a strange life that brings no blessing to the city in which we live, that isn't seeking the welfare of our city. But if we're going to embrace the tension and acknowledge our, the identity that we're called to in light of this passage in Hebrews, then we're not going to see ourselves as residents blending in. We're not going to see ourselves as aliens standing out. We're going to embrace the tension. We are resident aliens and we're going to live our lives, we're going to conduct our worship, we're going to engage our mission from that perspective. And I think this is what Jesus is getting after when he tells his disciples, look, you guys are going to be a city that's set on a hill. You guys are going to form a new society in the world. And as a new society in this world who's embodying and expressing the ethics of my kingdom, you're going to showcase to the world you're going to give them a, an imperfect yes, but a genuine foretaste of the world that is to come. There's a sense in which the community of faith should showcase to the city of Seattle what life will be like one day. That's why we combat injustice in this world. Because the world that is to come is going to eradicate it. So we want to give people hints and tastes of what is to come. That's why we take sin seriously and we extend grace generously. We do that because the world that is to come is going to be free of all sin. And it's going to be full of grace. So we want to live as a new society, a city as a, on a hill right now, just giving people glimpses and flashes and echoes of the world that is to come. This is what it means to be a resident, a resident alien. In the church, essentially what we want to become is a counterculture, not a combative culture and not a conceding culture, but a counterculture. I hope you can hear the difference between those. We're not combative and we're not conceding, we're counter. We're marked out by a new ethic. We're marked out by a new king. We're marked out by a new reality, saying we are moving towards this world that is to come, and as long, but as, as long as we are here, we're gonna bless and bless and bless. We're gonna seek the welfare of this city. But in order to do that, what do you have to do? You have to live as a resident alien. In other words, you have to commit yourself to grace and truth. Embrace that tension. Grace and truth. See, acknowledging our identity as resident aliens who are living towards the world that is to come, it will inevitably put us at odds with the culture we live in. Why is that? Because we're people of truth. We believe things. And the culture we're in do not like all the things that we believe. So we're going to find ourselves at odds with the city of Seattle. We're going to find ourselves at odds with whatever city you find yourself in in the future. But at the same time, living as resident aliens, yes, it's going to put us at odds with the city in which we live, but it's also going to put us in a position to bless the city in which we live, where we can seek to love this city in ways that would honor Jesus and contribute to human flourishing. This is what we want to go after as a church, and I think we're given 
a picture of kind of the practical outworking of this new society, some, some practical outworking tips on how this can show up in our church when you look over at Hebrews chapter 13. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13 very quickly, and you're going to see a picture of this new society. What are some of the things that we're committed to? What makes us strange? What makes us exiles? What makes us resident aliens? What, what are we showcasing? What are we embodying? What are we expressing? Here we find some of that. Hebrews chapter 13. You get to verse 1 and you see a practical outworking of this new, new society when the writer says, I want you to let brotherly love continue. In other words, I want you to love each other well. How you love each other is how the world's going to know that, you are, that we are his disciples. And so we want love to continue among us. That means we want to love one another even when we're irritating to one another. We want to love one another even when we're offended by each other. We want to con- let love continue, be a, 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 com- excuse me, a community that loves each other in radical ways. But then you go one step further. He says, let brotherly love continue. But then he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Open yourself up and let new people in. Open your life up to strangers, to people far from God, people who who you do not yet know. Open your life up to strangers, both in your personal life and in the church's life. We want to show hospitality. And this is one of the ways we live out our new identity as resident aliens. We We show ridiculous amounts of hospitality. But then you get to verse 3, and what does he say there? He says, also, I want you to remember those who are in prison as though in prison, as though you were in prison with them, and those who were mistreated since you were also in the body. What he's talking about there is when the book of Hebrews was written, a lot of Christians were being persecuted. A lot of Christians were put in prison, and they were uh, being oppressed because of their faith in Jesus. And, And the writer's saying, look, I want you to remember those who are hurting as a result of their faith. And the way you remember those who are being persecuted for their faith is by staying faithful to the faith. I fear that we are living in a day because we have so much freedom and so many comforts here in a city like ours and in a country like ours that we do not do this very well. We don't honor believers who are being persecuted as a result of their faith in other contexts and other places in the world. Instead, I think we dishonor them, and here's how. We dishonor the persecuted, our persecuted brothers and sisters when you and I make concessions to our doctrine and when you and I make concessions to our ethics in order to avoid being persecuted ourselves. In order to say, well, I don't want anybody to label us this way. I don't want anyone to misunderstand who we are as a church or who we are as disciples. So what do we do? We start curbing some of the edge of our gospel. We start curbing some of the edge of our ethics. And I think when we do that, we actually dishonor those who are literally losing their lives by maintaining a faithfulness to the gospel, faithfulness to Jesus. And yet we don't want to be labeled. And so we curb so much. We soften so much. Now, I'm not saying we want to hold our truths like, you know, with a, with a, in a reckless fashion so that we're just beating people down with them and mistreating people. Our, our truth, if we're really getting the truth that we believe, that'll never lead us to do that. It'll never lead us to do that. But I think there's a temptation we face to dishonor those who are hurting in the world when we make concessions because we don't want to be persecuted or mistreated or labeled in our own culture. But then he goes on. He says, verse 4, here's perhaps an area where this happens. Right after he says that, what does he say in verse 4? He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let marriage be held in honor among all. What do you think it means to hold marriage in honor? Well, I think it means recognizing and affirming the pattern and the paradigm for marriage that God set up in the Garden of Eden. When we think about God's ideals, Eden is God's ideal. And so when we think about marriage, when when it comes to our doctrine and when it comes to our ethics, understand that we take our doctrine and we draw our ethics from the Garden of Eden that's affirmed by Jesus in the Gospels and that are applied by the writers of the New Testament to the church and we go and do likewise. 
So the way that we honor marriage is by simply affirming what God affirms about it. And you know when we studied Genesis that God created human beings in his image. He made them male and female. And then he brought man and woman together in a covenant commitment and intimate relationship so that they might be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was God's design. That was God's intention. I think one of the ways we honor marriage is by holding to that reality. Now, I know it's hard to do that in the, world, in the world such as ours, but I think that's the tension we're called to embrace. I know it's difficult and challenging when, you have desire, when people have desires that are in conflict with themselves and desires that are in conflict with um, others. I know it's challenging and it's hard, but, but I don't think the church is doing the world any favors when we fail to live as resident aliens, when we choose to become residents on that front, or we choose to become aliens on that front and we speak harshly to people who are struggling with desires and we speak harshly with people who are having a hard time uh, accepting some of the things that the Bible teaches about marriage and sexuality and all those things. But I think we're gonna serve the world best when we embrace the tension we're called to embrace rather than relieving that tension by chopping off one aspect of who we are by becoming either a resident or an alien. We want to be resident aliens as this passage is calling us to. Which brings us to the next statement. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be what? Undefiled. He's getting after sexual purity. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will what? Judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He's saying, look, sex is good. Do it God's way. It's great. You don't do it God's way. It's bad. He's saying, let the marriage bed be undefiled. In other words, don't bring pornography into your marriage union. Don't fill your imagination and scar it with images that you would then apply to your spouse in ways that would dishonor God, in ways that would defile your bed, in ways that would promote unrealistic expectations for everyone involved. I mean, we're living in a society in a day and age right now where we're reaping what we're sowing as it relates to pornography. As a culture, we're reaping what we're sowing. We're learning now the damage and the effects that pornography has on the psyche and on the imagination and on intimacy between two human beings in the covenant of marriage. We're learning now the, the gross effects that it has on people. But for decades, we just sowed the seed. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. We got into the 90s and sitcoms started turning pornography into jokes, making it a laughing thing to normalize it. Then it continued on into the 21st century and shows continued to promote it and enhance it and make jokes about it, acting like it's normal and natural. But what are we doing now? Well, secular research is showing how damaging and devastating pornography can be to the human psyche and how it reduces intimacy between real persons in a real relationship. So we're reaping what we're sowing on that front. And here, God has been saying all along, the church needs to hold firm. The church needs to contribute to human flourishing by, by holding up and holding out that which God desires for people, that which would create and cause humans to flourish in ways that he desires. But then he goes on to verse 5 because he doesn't just come down on that type of thing. Verse 5, he says, keep your life free from the love of money. Don't get greedy. Don't get, 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 hoard, hoard, hoard. Keep your life free from money. When you fall in love with money, you become compromised in your character. And you will start making decisions that advance your career, but advances your career because you're able to step on the heads of other human beings. And you will go up the chain of command or you will go up the chain of success without looking to your right or to your left to help and to care for other people. Why? Because you're a lover of money. You're becoming greedy. You're becoming callous. He's saying, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Pursue contentment. This is, this is the type, these are the type of practical outworkings of what it means to be a new society right now, what it means to be the church. And if we're gonna be a blessing to the city of Seattle, we have to embrace all of this and embody all of this. We have to become resident aliens, not residents or aliens, to put it another way. As we give our lives to this pattern and we give our lives to this picture, we need to understand that we will never be fully understood in the world that is. We're never gonna be able to articulate our convictions about human sexuality, our convictions about gender, our convictions about marriage. We're never going to be able to communicate those things in ways that are understood by everyone, in ways that do not offend anyone, and we just gotta embrace that tension and just understand that we will never be fully understood. 
that it's difficult things to talk about and we're resident aliens, we're going to understand that we will never be understood on every issue and we need to risk being misunderstood. And I think that's the risk some of us are tempted to avoid. Put it another way, we want to live our lives and be a church that stands against the world for the sake of the world, that stands against the city of Seattle for the sake of Seattle. You know, sometimes it is said by Christians, look, I want you to be in the world but not of the world. And it sounds great to be in the world but not of the world, but I would remind you that the Pharisees were in the world but not of the world. We're not just talking about being in but not of. We're talking about being in and for. We are in the city of Seattle right now as followers of Jesus, resident aliens. And we want to be for the city of Seattle. But the way we live for the city of Seattle isn't by curbing our identity, isn't by fracturing our identity as residents or aliens. The way we live for the city is by being who God has called and claimed us to be. We are strangers and exiles. We are resident aliens. Let's acknowledge that and embrace the tension that comes with it. But then the question becomes, how do you get there? How do you get to that point? How do you become the type of church and the type of community that isn't naively inclusive or harshly exclusive? How do you cultivate this type of culture within the church? Well, you drop down to Hebrews 13, verse 12, and I think we have some guidance there. You drop down to verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 13, and we are told that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. I know that sounds strange. But this is coming on the hills where the writer of Hebrews is talking about how the corpses of sacrifices made in the temple are brought outside of the city and burned there. And the reason Israel would burn those corpses outside of the gate or outside of the camp is because it illustrated for everybody in the city that sin destroys human society. And so to get that living illustration in their DNA, all the time they would take these corpses and burn them outside the gate. Why? Because sin, again, destroys human society. So what did Jesus do? Well, he stepped into the world and he was crucified on a cross. He, was, he died outside of the gate. Why? Because he was identifying with fractured and fallen humanity. He was identifying with humanity that had been sullied and soiled by sin. He was, he was identifying with sinners like you and me coming all the way to us, knowing that human society in this world as it is now is fractured. It is sullied, but he's come to reverse that. And he reverses it by going outside the camp. And then look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him. Let's meet him there. Let's meet him in the place of sacrifice. Let's meet him in the place of service. Let's meet him outside the camp, so to speak. Let's go to the place where he was destroyed so that human society could start to be made new. And when we go outside the camp with Jesus and we identify with the one who's identified with us in this way, what does that mean? But we start bearing the reproach he endured. Verse 14, for here, understanding here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So through them then, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good. That is, bless, bless, seek the welfare of others. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing, pleasing to God. Jesus went outside of the city to identify with our failed attempts at creating a flourishing human society. And we go outside the gate to meet him there. And when we meet him there and are united with him by faith, what do we do? We're free to come back into the city and start living to the, for the flourishing of everyone we come in contact with. We're able to embrace the identity as resident aliens and, and live into the tension that comes with being a follower of Jesus in the world that is who's moving towards the world that is to come. So how do we get there? Well, we keep going to Jesus. We keep going to Jesus, going to Jesus, going to Jesus, going to Jesus, the one who is full of grace and truth, the ultimate resident alien who's called us to live in a similar rhythm, lives characterized by grace and truth, identities recognized as resident aliens. This is how we get there. We run to Jesus constantly. Now, the early church, the first generation of Christians, the reason why the gospel exploded through them the way that it did, I believe, is because they acknowledged this and they lived this way. 
They embrace the tension. This is why you read a letter written among Christians coming out of the second century describing, describing the first church. Listen to how the Christians were described. Listen to the tension. It's incredible. In this letter that dates back to the second century A.D., Describing Christians saying, you know, they have a common table, but not a common bed. Don't you love that? They have a common table. They're loving everyone. They're welcoming everyone, but they're not laying with everyone, right? Common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all people, even though they're persecuted by all people. They are poor, yet they're making many others rich. They are reviled, and yet they still bless. They're blessing a world that isn't blessing them in return. They're loving people who isn't loving them in return. That's embracing the tension. They are insulted, and yet they repay insults with honor. Can you imagine being that type of society here in Seattle? repaying insults with honor. They do good, yet they're punished, punished as evildoers. When, they, when punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them, get this, those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for the hatred. It's not unlike what Jesus experienced in John chapter one when we are told that the light of the world came into the world, but the world loved darkness rather than light. You know, the fact that people aren't going to like us just because they don't like the light of Jesus that's shining in the world through his people. Are you okay with that? Are you, can you embrace that kind of tension? Can you keep that kind of edge about you? Not an edge that says nobody can get close to you, but an edge that says, look, I love you even if you don't love me. I'm going to bless you even if you're not going to bless me. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way the church is designed ultimately to be, and I pray this is what we would become as a faith family in this city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning, uh, evening, and I recognize that this is, that these concepts are challenging, that these concepts, concepts can be difficult, and I just pray that you would give grace and truth to our hearts so that we might acknowledge our identity as resident aliens, as strangers and exiles, and that you would empower and equip us by your spirit to live towards the world that is to come in a way that would bring blessing to the world that we are in right now. God, we love the city of Seattle, and we recognize it is broken and beautiful all at the same time. Give us grace to embrace the tension that exists in our lives as we follow you by faith, as we trust in the Savior. God, would you work this within us in ways that would be, that would work a revolution in our souls and God, work the advancement of your kingdom throughout this city. God, we love you and we pray for cultural integrity in Jesus' name, amen.